This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. For $5 a month, you can actually see the Thin Green Line interviews and other video content on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and feel like you're part of the conversation. Join us. Well, hey, everybody. We are very, very happy to have a great guest on the show today here on the Thin Green Line podcast. Our friend Jana Waller, uh, worldwide conservationist and host of Skullbound TV. And uh, we've got her from Montana today, and we're going to talk about a, a lot of cool conservation-related things, especially in the light of this changing landscape of the world here in 2020. Welcome to the show, Jana. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a little bit of a, t- a time gap that where you and I have not been able to chit chat. So it's a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, super, super cool to have you on. It has been a while, but we've had the experience of sharing a lot of good conservation projects in the past. And for our listeners and viewers that don't know, you and I met, we're going on to, I think, SHOT Show 2016, if I remember correctly. When we uh, when we launched the Camillus Pro staff and uh, connected with Nosler and started working with our good friend Jared Ogden of uh, Triumph Systems, Reactive yep. Targets, and did a lot of good programs around that, especially from your and my eye perspective is, you know, you have the game warden and worldwide conservationist and avid hunter like yourself, really bringing the conservation element into it. So um, here on the Thin Green Line podcast, it's really cool to discuss those issues and also all the cool stuff you've been doing since we met. Um, the TV show's awesome, and we certainly want to talk about that. But without putting the cart in front of the horse, um, I know a little bit of your backstory, quite a bit of it, because we've, we've shared those stories. But for our listeners and viewers, you weren't always a hunter growing up, right? There was a little bit of a transition. You had some mentors and influences. Can you take us in the Wayback Machine a little bit and tell us how you started in the sport? Sure. I uh, grew up in the beautiful state of Wisconsin, and I... Uh, was smart enough to have, uh, lucky enough, I should say, to have a father who really saw in me just this passion for nature. I was one of two girls. I was the second, and I think he desperately wanted a boy. So the whole joke is open. <laughs> he turned me into one, but that's okay. Uh, I think it's innately in me, but I also think uh, that he really uh, nurtured my love of just being in the outdoors. And really, that's what hunting is all about. I mean, it's it's a it, it's got a lot of components to it, but it's a love of nature. And I he would take me along, walk in the pheasant fields of Wisconsin. Um, I joke about it too. About he, he took I would beg him and beg him to go, but he finally took me when I was old enough to uh, stand an afternoon out there without complaining a whole lot. He would let me sit in the duck blinds with them and the goose blinds and. It really, and then uh, there was a gap there. Actually, junior high days, my dad and I road tripped it to South Dakota from from Wisconsin, and and for for pheasant hunting trips, and that was a huge highlight of my junior high days, if you will. But then there was a gap in high school where I didn't do a whole lot of hunting. Um, sat in the tree stands a little bit when my dad started to get into whitetail hunting, but I was more into sports. And uh, but then when I was in college. 
in my freshman year at UW-Whitewater in Wisconsin, I met a girl, uh, friends of my roommate, who had just gotten a deer with her bow. And I, and mind you, this is 1989. <laughs> you can do the math. <laughs> and right. I mean, there were women who pioneered women in the outdoors like Brenda Valentine, but there were not a lot of women in the outdoors back then, um, especially bow hunting. And so I, I talked to her and I'm like, wow, that's so cool. I can't, I can't pull my boyfriend's bow back though. How do you do that? She's like, well, you got to get one that fits for you. And it was kind of one of those <laughs> aha moments of someone really taking the time to teach me about bow hunting and um, at least the mechanics of the bow and bought a bow just weeks after that. It was also at the same time where my dad, um, who I went to college only 10 minutes from where I grew up, he had shot his first buck and he couldn't find it. And he called me up and he said, Hey, last night I stick up, stuck a big buck, my first with a bow, want to come help me find it, look for it. And I absolutely, I skipped class went and uh, went into the cornfields with him. And sure enough, I ended up finding that buck and yelled over to my dad, I found him, I found him. And my dad came <laughs> over. My dad's this cool, collected kind of guy, six foot four, big, tall, athletic. I've never seen my dad more excited. Uh, he, he literally, <laughs> finding that buck to the birth of his two daughters. He says that all the time. Wow. To people. And I, I laughed and I, but I also wanted to know what that felt like. So that all happened my freshman year in college, and I've been a bow hunter ever since. I'm going on um, 30 years. I've been really blessed to bow hunt. Of course, Wisconsin with my dad since then, but um, Africa has been an amazing experience for me. Um, I've bow hunted all over Canada and, of course, all over the U.S. And But that was really, that freshman year in college was really, I would say, the birth of my passion for big game hunting. And then um, I moved out to Montana 11 years ago and um, started the show Skullbound TV. There were not a lot of female hosted shows on the Sportsman's Channel. And I really wanted to tie in my passion for conservation. I had been, I've been a, a, an artist my whole life, but a funsy artist, I always say. I mean, there's so many amazing professional artists out there. But I started painting and beating skulls and skulls that I had hunted, skulls I had found while shed hunting, skulls I had bought at yard sales and garage sales or on eBay. And I started painting and beating those. And one thing led to another, I launched a website and uh, people got really liked the whole, uh, just something unique to do with a hunt. And so I started donating a lot of those to Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, my dad's conservation groups back in Wisconsin. Well, then when I moved out West, I got really involved with the Mule Deer Foundation, the Turkey Federation, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Safari Club International, all these great groups that were out there fighting for what I loved. And that was hunting, um, our hunting heritage and habitat, which is just so critical. And uh, so that's been sort of the lowdown of it. I spent the last nine years producing Skullbound TV on the Sportsman's Channel, made a huge switch in 2020, which happened to be actually beautiful timing with crazy COVID um, technology changes. People are changing the way that they watch adventure television and hunting television. They kind of want it when they want it and they want it now and they want it quick. And, and so I made the jump off the network this year from Sportsman Channel to Carbon TV, which is available on an app on your phone. It's also available, available through Roku and Fire Stick. So people like myself who still like to watch it on their TV sets can get it. But Carbon TV is completely free. It's like, I call it the YouTube for hunters. It doesn't discriminate against guns and hunting and trapping and fishing. And um, it's, it's, so now my show transitioned over there is called Skullbound Chronicles, where it's still a hunting adventure show. We tie a little bit of the conservation message into each episode. And, and uh, it's been a, it's been a crazy wild, well, crazy 2020 for everybody, but a huge transitional year for me still doing what I love, just a different platform. Nice. Yeah, it's super cool that you can still keep the TV platform going to get that outreach and education in its widest band, um, yeah. even through COVID. And um, yeah, we, we're kind of doing the same thing with Recoil TV with uh, our Thin Green Line film series. And it's it's just so neat because people can watch it on their phone, they can stream it to their TV. And when you're filming great outdoor cinematic settings of what nature offers in 4K, but you're not seeing it on other networks that aren't broadcasting that level, and to see it on these platforms, it's amazing. And I've, I've been watching your show, of course, and and, uh, taught and promoting it. 
and it's just beautifully done and it's neat to see it on that platform and uh like you said crazy transition crazy time but uh but a blessing to still have it going and, and still yeah. having the re- having the reach you do to conservationists everywhere yeah yeah it's a it's just a not it's so hard to gauge anything in 2020 but i do feel like um if anything i think we need to strive moving forward i think we need to um talk about and think about what really truly matters to us in this crazy time we live in right now, whether we're talking COVID, whether we're talking law enforcement, riots, whatever is going on in this crazy world right now. Um, but I do think one of the blessings that is that have come out of COVID is this sense of appreciation for two things. One is nature. People are getting out camping. They're getting out because there wasn't anything to do, right, in the, right, spring, right, right. And in the summer. So people are getting out, going to the lake they're maybe going fishing for the first time or camping or exploring or hiking. They're really getting back to nature because of COVID, because of course it was the only thing available. And then um, this connection to our food, which, you know, most of us hunters or, you know, who are out there nonstop, that's what our freezers are full of. We didn't panic when we went to the grocery store and there's no meat on the shelves. If I open up my freezer right now, I've got everything from mountain lion, bear, whitetail, muley, antelope, you name it, fish galore, birds galore. Um, I'm not worried when the grocery store is shut down, but I think finally people are, it's the first time, you know, that they've had to experience that making uh, a greater awareness for hunting and fishing and, you know, gathering our own organic meat. So those two things coming out of COVID, I think are good. And uh, I just think now with the awareness set in place, we need to then talk to and educate and open up that dialogue to non-hunters um, about our lifestyle. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And we, uh, to your point, Wayne and I have been talking about this for months. It's really interesting that, you know, this, this worldwide pandemic is the most, one of the most horrible things we've seen in all of our lifetimes, but we always like to spin. What are, what are we deriving from it? What are we learning from it? What are non-hunters, non-conservationists getting from it? And you hit it perfectly on the head in that people are looking at their freezers and they're going, wow, I might have to fend for myself. I might have to sustain for my family. I might have to become a hunter. And between April and May of this year, there was a 30% increase in hunter safety and hunter and hunting licenses sold nationwide in the midst of COVID from California, my old colleagues there back where you're at and Wayne's at up here in Montana. It was crazy. It was kind of forced, but from our, all of our standpoint on the conservation thing, green line front, it was really beautiful to see. And yeah. a lot of those sales were coming in first time gun purchases from people traditionally not in that realm at all of having any of that. And just, the flood of people in the outdoors is inspiring to see and a little bit of self-sustaining uh, mindset that they need and kind of a wake-up call what this pandemic's brought for that that very reason. Right. Well, there is such a disconnect with people, especially, I always call them the nons, but let's face it, if you grew up in a hunting family, you kind of already get it. You get what our lifestyle's about. It's normal. It's, you know, I'm, I'm right now looking at in my living room and behind me, like, those are my, I hate the word trophy, but there's really no replaceable word I've found yet. But those are my memories, right? That's normal to me yep. to be looking at uh, a wall of head mounts. And it's normal for me to, um, you know, fill my freezer with organic meat that I've, I've hunted myself. It's just normal. And I grew up that way. But with the nons, the non-hunters, there's definitely a bis- big disconnect because sometimes, a lot of times, the only, the only, um, the only thing, the only hunters they know are from either mainstream media, which don't do us any favor or movies right. Right? and movies right. certainly don't do us any favors. They make us no. all look like we're, you know, <laughs> got a lot of tobacco in our lower lip shooting yeah. from the truck. You know, I mean, they just, yeah. yeah, don't do us any favors is the nicest way I can put it. So that might be their only um, experience with hunters, right? Um, unless they really are go- willing to look at social media and open up the dialogue of like, um, you know, of why we hunt. But now with this awareness, I think it's a really good opportunity for all of us to make that connection to people and to teach people that we hunters are the stewards of the land. I mean, mm. really, while every state's wildlife management system is funded in a huge part because of hunters. When we purchase those licenses, when we purchase hunting related products, and because of the, was it 1937 Pittman Robertson Act? builds right. a tax into those hunting products and that tax is then used 
from in every state to manage their wildlife, to pay for law enforcement or, or game wardens or, you know, a, a herd of, you know, bighorn sheep here in Montana die on the mountain because of pneumonia, who our hunters dollars pay for that reinstatement of sheep on the mountain. And, you know, it goes on and on and chronic wasting disease, a deer, a deer disease that's affecting every single state. You know, those those dollars come from hunters, a big portion of them. And I think there's that disconnect for people. They don't understand that we're animal lovers. We pay for the majority of wildlife management in this country. And now with this new awareness of new hunters, we can teach them that so they can then tell their friends about our lifestyle and and all the wonderful benefits of being a hunter. And I mean, we have wildlife because we hunt wildlife. That's a quote from... Uh, my boyfriend, John Bear, who was just on Blood Origins, which is a documentary series teaching the whys, why we hunt. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime, which is a good platform to reach the nons. And right. uh, I just think we all need to do a better job of teaching people why we're hunting and the benefits of it. Mm-hmm. So true. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And, and if someone doesn't want to hunt themselves because they come from, quote unquote, that non-hunting background, just at least understand and empathize that those hunters that are out there take a kind of a unifying stance on, I may not like to hunt no matter what I see in the benefits, the logic, the, you know, the, uh, the conservation balance, but I'm going to accept legal and ethical hunting as something we need. And that's something that as game wardens, Wayne and I have always been um, having to deal with. And me coming from a state like California, that is not, is, is rapidly becoming a non-consumptive state, but mm. you have this, you know, you have this percentage of very, die hard conservationists on every level. Um, and then you have non-consumptive users kind of driving, you know, the, the, the whether it's politics, whether it's interests in California um, of educating those type of folks through hunter safety. And we've had, we're getting people that don't even want to hunt, but they just want to take a hunter safety class say in the state of California to say, Hey, you know, I've been told this isn't a good thing. I'm kind of scared of it. Guns. I'm not all into guns. It's, it's a freaky thing because they've seen us on TV, right? Like you said, from the hunting standpoint, but then they go through hunter education and I've had several students that don't actually go hunting, but they've got an uncle that goes, or they've got an aunt that goes and they just want to go along Uh or they just want to have basic firearm safety through the hunter education program. And they see through the conservation block in that when we talk about management and habitat and edging effect and all those different terms, you know, the light bulb kind of goes off and we kind of get some support, even if they're not contributing. And I mean, that's a great message to get out there and not push it, but have people understand it. And especially in COVID now, that's really a, a great thing you're doing. And you bring the element of not only pushing conservation, but like you said, in the early days, there were very few credible women that were doing what you do every step of the way and showing conservation in a good light and doing the heavy lifting yourselves and bringing in veterans and honoring, you know, some of our warriors coming back that therapeutically get into a conservation mindset and go on a hunt and how good that can be from a healing standpoint, from PTSD, everything to coming back into a sense of a team. And uh, you and I have a lot of, a lot of friends in the, in the, you know, special operations community that, just like our history in special operations in California um, as game wardens and in New Hampshire, they go, you know, when I left operations, this depression set in because I never thought I'd have something to work so hard for and feel so connected to a team. But then I get ready for an archery elk hunt, you know, and I gear up with all the right gear and I'm going to be in the back country of Montana. You know, I think of my buddy, Terry Hewen, Jared, any of these guys, whether they're seals, green berets or whatever. And they find that camaraderie again, they find that, that motivated goal. That's very challenging. And it's just so healing to see. And for guys like uh, us as well, that are now out of operations and we're doing more outreach than pushing a gun in the field to try to stop bad guys taking our wildlife. So it's a, uh, it's good to see you doing that. And if you could talk a little bit about that um, yeah. for our viewers and listeners that don't know the twist you put on Skullbound Chronicles and Skullbound TV previously. Yeah. I've been just so blessed in the last 11 years to, um, like you said, meet a lot of these um, just military heroes. You know, they they would never call themselves heroes, but that's totally what they are. Um, I have, I was inspired actually because of our mutual friend, Jared Ogden. I met Jared and his buddy, Bo Richenbeck, who is a double amputee Navy SEAL. Um, This was now eight or nine years ago. I met them in Missoula at a football game where they were honoring Bo and um, just 
after talking quite a bit with Bo, I said, would you be interested in going on an elk hunt? And he said, absolutely. You know, he, uh, Bo didn't grow up hunting because he was just an incredible hockey player. And right. uh, so he wasn't, he and his dad didn't really get a chance to spend much time in the mountains together. But so he and his dad went with me, we went with a uh, rich bird cell, uh, an amazing outfit over um, a couple hours from here in Montana. I can't even think of the a Kent near cascade, Montana. And mm-hmm. Bo, that guy is an incredible he is just, he's just a beast. I mean, here we were the first day, Bo has prosthetics, but the prosthetics were very um, difficult to maneuver in the terrain because it was, you know, just real rocky, real uneven dirt. And Bo said, do you guys mind if I take off my prosthetics and I'm just going to crawl? And for eight (laughs) days, eight days, Bo crawled the mountains. I mean, he's a big, strong guy. His upper body is amazing. And, but, you know, think about it climbing the mountains day after day. He was so sore, um, I'm sure, but he never complained once. He never let any of the huge steep ridges stop him. And on the last evening of day eight, he got his beautiful big bull and it changed my life. It was just, it was so amazing, like you say said, to watch him prepare for the hunt. And that's one thing that nons don't maybe understand, they, they don't quite get or understand is that it's not the pulling of the trigger. It's everything. Yeah. It's it's the process of planning. Um, what gear do you need? It's the process of training to make sure that you can climb those mountains and, you know, dealing with weather and it, it's grueling. It's often very grueling on big game hunts. And, but Bo is the, definitely the one who sparked my passion for getting uh, combat veterans into the woods. And I have taken numerous, numerous veterans, mostly through wishes for warriors um, and a couple other groups that I work with, but I've taken Eric Galvin, a triple amputee, got him his first bull in Wyoming. Uh, Corey Garman, a, a double amputee, got him a bull. Um, so, uh, lo- there's been a lot of them. I'm actually taking Jonathan Blank. Uh, he's a former recon sniper. He's a double amp- amputee. We're taking him at R&K in Wyoming this October. I'm so excited nice. about that hunt. It's going to be great. But it's, been, cool. it's become a big passion of mine. And uh just because it's it's just an amazing experience to be able to share the mountains with these men and women. I did take a combat medic, um, Shelby Hatch, on an antelope hunt, but it's primarily men um, who are going through, of course, combat. But to be in the woods with them, to hear their stories, um, to understand what it's like overseas for someone. I've been to the Middle East three times, but of course, never in a war zone and never in a combat zone. And to hear their stories of what they've been through and to come back and then try to acclimate back into society, try to figure out, you know, like you said, to, to create that bond again through for people who are going to understand what they've been through. And hunting is that catalyst that can really do that, that can um, help them uh, help them challenge, help them deal with the challenges of getting back into the outdoors. Sometimes they don't even know where to start, especially if they haven't been big game hunting before. But it also creates that bond and that unity. All of us always check in with each other now. Like, how's your fall going? Are you able to get out there again? Um, You know, are you running low on meat? That's another thing, too, that's just so much fun to share with people is the sharing of the meat. It sounds funny, but nothing does that like hunting. You don't go to Costco and buy a big pack of ribs and deliver it to the neighborhood. I mean, it's (laughs) (laughs) right. Right. But when you go out and you get a big elk and maybe you like, I live alone. Like I'm not going to eat a whole elk in the course of a year, much less I I hunt a lot because of the show. It's so fun for me to share in that with people. I share it with my neighbors and my family and my hairdresser and, you know, and so that's really fun to watch these guys, you know, get up on their bull and just realize how much work it took to, you know, to do that on their own. And then to be able to share that meat with their family. And it's just a spiritual process. And uh, I'm excited to go on my hunts this fall. I'm also excited. I, I have started the wheels turning to where I think what I'm going to do for 2022 is create an all veteran season I've got all these amazing hunts that are hard to find now because the last nine years they were on the network. You can still go watch them right now on my outdoor TV, but that's a subscription based, which some people can't afford to do that right now. Um, I'm thinking of gathering up all my old 
veteran hunts, putting collectively putting them along with some new ones in one big veteran season and putting them on carbon TV, which is free for everybody so that everybody can get inspired and uh, see what those hunts truly mean to those warriors and also to everybody around them and including myself. So that's my goal for 2022. Great idea. Yeah. I've been just sitting back uh, listening to you guys chat. And uh, before you came on, John, me and Janet were talking and I told her, I said, I don't even know if I want to let him in on this conversation because we're having such a good conversation. (laughs) 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 And, 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 you know, for our listeners and... just uh, I'm going to plug our viewers, actually, because if you go to the Patreon, you can actually see these podcasts. And to get inside uh, Jana Waller's house and to see the things that I'm seeing right now is is pretty dang incredible. And, and like I told Janet, sometimes it says, you know, your personality, you know, what you are is, is what's behind you. And I just uh, told her I started teaching college and doing presentations with the, the kids and telling them, you know, be conscious of your Zoom meetings that we're all doing now because of COVID and uh, be, be conscious of what you have behind you because that's part of your personality. That's, that's letting people look Absolutely. into you. So what you represent, what gets you excited, you know, if it's a blank wall, so let it be a blank wall. If you hang one thing on there that says something to you, maybe that one thing is going to be that thing that that person focuses on. And I've been sitting here writing notes. I got notes through the whole conversation you guys have been talking about. And uh, I I don't even know where to start, to be honest with you. It's just, uh, it it was pretty cool to listen to all all of uh, Jana's experience and what she's doing and uh, how she started, because I most of us start with with our, our our parents. That's why I'm a game warden, hunting with my dad, and then have an interaction with a game warden in the woods at six years old. John had an interaction with a game warden in the woods, and uh, that that protector of everything that we grew up getting personal to. And you know, even though you had that little uh, disconnect there, Jana, you, you came back to what you were brought up and what you uh, were taught. And one thing that it mentions, you know, when you talked about the hockey player. And COVID's helping with this, I'll tell you that, because my son plays sports. And I started watching as a hunter education instructor, as, uh, you know, I worked with youth a lot and a lot of different aspects. Sports is really killing outdoors because we are focusing those kids. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I didn't play sports. I grew up hunting and fishing. That, That was my sport. My son now, you know, he plays hockey, he plays soccer. Last year, he, he's got a new dog, a new bird dog, and he didn't. I hunted her more than he did because it was always soccer practice. It was soccer practice. It was soccer practice. When he got home, it was getting dark. It was too late. And yeah. I, I just, it brought to my attention that that's how youth is slipping away because we're keeping them busy doing other things. And I really yeah. want to keep them busy. And I, the, Look at the silver lining. Everybody says that of COVID, bringing them back to nature, uh, sports struggling, but yet, hey, we're going to go hunting this season. I'm excited. You know, he's not going to play soccer, and, and we're going to get to do a lot more hunting, a lot more bird hunting, getting out there uh, and experiencing that, which he loves to do. It's just it's just hard when you have those two loves, and, and which, which one do you spend the time with, and all your friends are playing these other things, and you have to go out with dad, which, you know, is cool sometimes, but not so cool all the time. <laughs> Yeah, and really at that time, I talked to a lot of parents and it is really hard because, you know, my dad and I loved a joke about if I recorded him on my phone, this my last time I went down to Florida, my dad lives six months out of the year in Wisconsin and six months in Florida. Smart man. And I got on my phone and I recorded conversations with him because I want to remember these conversations, but he talked about his childhood and it's so different. His childhood, and my dad is 78, so, you know, mind you, 70 years ago was so different than the world we live in today. He said he had, there were um, three boys and one sister, and his parents would kick him out of the house at, you know, sunrise and say, don't, (laughs) don't come back till dinner at six o'clock, you know, and they had to figure out their own fun, right? Yeah. And they had to, you know, that go fishing down at the local water, the pond, and you know, he, they had to figure out stuff to do. And nowadays, my gosh, there's so much for kids to mm. do. And parents have them in five different sports and this, you know, gymnastics and this athletic club and this and that. And it, all those are wonderful things. I, I grew up playing soccer. I love I, I love sports. I think sports are wonderful for kids. But it is really hard in my, my friends who are parents who talk about balance and trying mm. to find, you know, they want their kid involved in team sports, 
which is because of all the life lessons, but hunting does that too. And it's hard to find the time. I mean, I'm, first of all, I've always said, I'm not sure of anything else that creates the dichotomy of emotions that hunting does. Yeah. Athletics is close. Uh, even solo athletics and group athletics, mm-hmm. right? It's close. It, it's the highs and the lows and the hard work. And But I'm not sure what else besides hunting creates the level of emotions from, you know, reflection, you're sitting in the woods or you're sitting in your tree stand or you're duck blind and it's quiet and you're a little bit bored and you're a little bit cold. And then boom, you see those tines coming through the woods or you hear off in the distance, the flock coming in and, and your heart rate starts to pound. And, you know, it's different with every style of hunt that you do, but then you're successful and you get to, you know, punch that trigger or notch that tag. And the, the, then after that, that's when the real work begins, especially with big game hunting and it's processing the meat and filling your freezer. And then every meal that you have and you're dining on that antelope or elk and you're talking about the hunt and it, I just don't know what else does that, you know, for people, the level of emotions and the connectivity that it can bring between family members or, or you know, or even boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, kids. It's, it's amazing. And I feel bad for people who don't get to experience that. But you're right. One of the biggest things, the conservation groups, one of their biggest missions is getting kids involved. Mm-hmm. And one of their biggest challenges is getting the kids away from other activities because those are good too. No mm-hmm. one is saying sports are bad in any way, shape or form. It's just finding time for it all. I know that like the Mule Deer Foundation, they have a great youth program. The Turkey Federation is huge. They, they, they do huge kids events. Now they have a huge new shooting complex um, at their headquarters uh, and they do a lot of kids programs through that. And it, it's, it's all wonderful. It's just getting the kids involved and away from other things, or at least making time for hunting and fishing. Exactly. And- yeah. And I think Jana, that's a really good point. There's nothing bad about sports. We know that sports builds camaraderie, teamwork, responsibility, accountability, but you're right. I played sports. Wayne played sports. His son's obviously in it. I'm sure you did. But there's a predictability to certain sports. You know, you're going to be on a field. You're going to be against so many players. If it's a team sport, you know what the parameters are. If you're an individual athlete, say a track runner or a sprinter is an example. But hunting is so unpredictable. And it's so exhilarating because, like you said, every hunt is different. Um, that split second to decide, am I going to shoot? Am I not going to shoot? Am I going to launch an arrow? Am I not going to launch an arrow? And all of the patience involved, the cold mornings, the, you know, the sunsets, the sunrises, living on a hillside for five, 10, maybe more days in, in elk camp or whatever. And when you, when you have those experiences, and I know we speak a little biased about that, I don't think there's any better activity to make you more self-reliant and more confident to promote good things and to feel comfortable in any environment environmentally than being a hunter because you kind of have to if you're really going to go after you know certain animals good mature animals and you're going to go to good herds and it's it's just an amazing thing and to see that light bulb go off with a 13 year old say from the silicon valley that's been in front of a playstation 5 or whatever the whole time and get him into the woods the first time up here in Montana. In fact, it just happened over Labor Day weekend. I had close friends and nephews that are from California and now they're, you know, hiking into the yak to catch the first cutthroat trout, you know, their Western cut or to go put out trail cameras with me over the weekend and just turn it every turn. And in those dark, dense, you know, mountains of Montana that we have this deep timber, they're just like, I know there's timber wolves here. I know we're in grizzly bear country. Is a, is a, is a bear going to get us, you know, this and that, but just getting slowly more enamored with it than, fearful of it and just enjoying it. And uh, there's nothing like it. And, and you've, uh, you're doing it so much, but you're doing so much besides a TV show and it's doing great things. But from the standpoint of promoting conservation, um, we had a mutual friend on Gabriella Hoffman, not too long ago on the thin green line. She mentioned you, I had no idea you were working together. What a small world. We had that kind of discussion of how we all know each other, yeah. but um, what you're doing in circles like that, where, you know, you've got people in DC and you're working with, like we all are, with people all over that are kind of running some of the policies throughout the nation that aren't in traditional hunting areas. They're in the hub of the city. Um, Talk to us about some of those programs and where you're going with it and what you see happening um, with those efforts. 
Well, yeah, Gabriella, she's amazing. She <laughs> she has such a great story, just especially of being able she to does. where her family came from. And she she is such she is such a great uh, promoter of the outdoors and coming from a perspective of being sort of new to mm-hmm. a lot yeah. of it. I, I, I love following her along. Um, I get to see her at SHOT Show. I sure hope we have another SHOT Show this January. But um, yeah, she's amazing. I need to get it. We're, we've talked about trying to link up and do a hunt or a fishing weekend together. But um, right now, where I'm really trying to focus my efforts are the conservation groups that I work so closely with. Um, last week, I had about, I'd say, 50 phone calls back and forth from all of my partners relating to the Mule Deer Foundation. You've got to think about how COVID has affected these conservation groups. They haven't been able to have their major fundraising banquets. You know, usually they start, you know, January and go through the hardcore, heavy spring, summer season. And of course, with COVID, they haven't been able to do that, which is how they raise their money. And I know that the National Wild Turkey Federation and the Mule Deer Foundation both have been trying desperately. Those are the two groups I work the most closely with. They've been desperately trying to figure out how are we going to make up for these funds that we no longer have and, you know, where their funds go. That's a whole nother podcast, but real quickly, they go towards protecting the habitat, um, protecting the flocks and the herds and putting in water tanks where they may need them for big game, which then affects turkeys and everything else. You know, Um, they all, they all have their specific missions, but they also all work together. They work together in the court systems, battling all these ridiculous court cases that keep getting instated to, oh, one of them this last year was, um, of course, I believe it was instated from the, um, people don't understand that the humane, the United States Humane Society, not your local humane society. I am a strong believer in the local humane society. It's where I got my dog. It's where I right. donate all my extra towels and food, cat food, dog food, whatever. But the humane, United States, the Humane Society of the United States, HSUS, is one of the biggest anti-hunting groups out there. And they instate these ridiculous court cases like stop dogs and all forms of hunting, including... Not just bear and mountain lion hunting, but pheasant hunting, duck hunting. They want to, and anyone who owns a bird dog or a, or a hound dog knows that's what they live for. They love right. to hunt. Mm-hmm. And right. so a lot of these groups are not only fighting for our uh, gun rights, but also our hunting rights and our dogs hunting rights. And so their, their money that they, the money that they raise goes to protect everything that we love. And so last week with Mule Deer Foundation, we're trying to figure out how I can get my partners involved. And every year they do what's called the ultimate giveaway. And it's a big giveaway. They give away a Polaris Ranger. They give away some incredible hunts, um, uh, an amazing R&K hunting company, Mule Deer Hunt, which I've been on and I've seen the deer that walk that mountain. It's amazing. Uh, But (laughs) we decided that, um, so this is a a year long fundraiser. They promote it all year round. They're big, big prizes. And next year, next August, when they do it again, there's going to be a Skullbunk Chronicles prize package. And I'm really excited. All my partners came through. We're going to be giving away a 30 Nosler, uh, carbon fiber, nice. birdie, Nosler, right? Decked out with vortex optics and um, just the whole gamut. You're going to walk away being basically set to go full cryptech, you name it with that package, cooler systems. It's a, uh, we put it all together in the course of one week. We're also going to be giving away um, or a raffle tickets, mind you, for a custom made one of a kind engraved desert Eagle 429 nice yeah and all the money is going to go right back to the mule deer foundation so that's where i've been focusing a lot on my conservation efforts if you will i'm also on the uh, advisory board for sportsmen for trump and so we are having bi-weekly meetings just to talk about how basically how are we going to encourage people to get out and vote we all need to get out and vote and uh how and how the policies and who we vote vote for are going to affect sportsmen so that's where I've been putting a lot of my time lately. No, kudos. It's all really, really good stuff. The giveaways are a good way to do it. Um, and when you talk about the committees and all the banquets and dinners that have been cut short, I'm on the committee here in, in Northwest Montana where Rocky Mountain Elk started here in Libby, Montana with Charlie Decker. And there's, oh. there's going to be no fundraising dinner. There's no meetings. Um, the national meetings we were supposed to do some things at that I'm helping with as well everything's just on hold and you know how critical RMEF has been here in Montana, especially and the rest of the country. 
Um, so kudos to what you're doing. It, it's really, really uh, positive and helping all of us on the conservation front out. And um, not to get too political, but you said it best, um, getting more people to vote. And no exaggeration, I don't think a vote has ever been more critical than this year, than really in the history of what we're facing for our nation from the standpoint of not only safety within our borders, but conservation and the sustainment of our wildlife species and promoting public lands and access. Um, that's been a big thing about the, the, pr the previous administration, you know, this first administration in the first year and uh, all the people we work with. And uh, it is critical. So um, thank you for m promoting that. And we are as well. It's coming up quick. Yeah, it is. It is. Be <laughs> you know it. And uh, I know that uh, everybody it's, it's, it's hard not to have it on your mind. I mean, social media right now is, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost a necessary evil, especially for what we all do. We need to get our messages out there, right? Mm, we need to, right, I need to right. promote the companies that I believe in and the causes that I believe in. And it, but I get on there. I don't know about you guys, but I'm exhausted, especially mm. after Twitter. I go through <laughs> my Twitter. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. It is crazy. It really is crazy. And it's crazy because there is a lot of misinformation out there. There's people are, you know, it does pick a topic. You'll you, if you go on Twitter or even Facebook or even Instagram and pick a topic, you're going to see posts from both sides. You're going to see, you know, fake news for lack of a better term. And it's, it's just nuts. And I, I really think that um, people need to do their own research. That's my biggest, uh, my biggest thing, especially even talking with my own family in Wisconsin, you know, yeah. I'm like, mom, mom, I'm no, wait, 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 mom. <laughs> You know, first of all, turn off your mainstream media news mm. and let me tell you a little bit about what's really going on, you know, right, and it's right. to discern that and it can get it can get a bit overwhelming. But I think people need to do their own research and really need to think about instead of voting for a candidate, voting for policy and voting for what mm. they is near and dear to their heart. And, you know, border security is huge to me because I have so many friends who are in law enforcement who tell me the stories about like our the the drug situation right now in our country, the child trafficking situation in our country, stuff that maybe is, you know, people don't understand that this this is not third world country problems. These are problems that are going on. People are aware of the drug problem in our country. I don't think they're aware of the other situations that are going on. But a lot of our mutual friends who are in special forces, that seems to be their huge championing cause is the trafficking issue going on right now. And I think when we go to the polls, we need to really think about what candidate is the strongest on the things that mean the most to us, like public land, hunting, um, law enforcement, you know, you name it, whatever topic you believe in, but voting for what, you know, what rings true to your heart and what, what's the most important topics for you? Yeah. And, and you know, Jenna, when you and I met and, and you saw the background of what we were, we were doing on the conservation game warden front, dealing with the drug cartels out of Mexico yeah. and everything from human trafficking to, you know, importing and producing, you know, toxically tainted black market cannabis. Um, that's become a big, big issue, especially with this administration with border control and we're talking about the same people we work with. And I'm training federal officers and military right now on the southwestern border. And we're actually taking our Thing Green Line film series and focusing on that area around conservation hunts with our first film um, right on the Texaco-Mexico uh, border for Outad Sheep. Um, but it is a huge issue that people don't really know the facts for. And right. something you've been doing through conservation, something, you know, my brand's a little more specific to that issue given the background of the fight we're fighting specifically on the special operations game warden front. And it's in every state. It's not just in California. It's not just in Texas and Arizona. The public doesn't realize that these groups are here and embedded and mm -hmm. they are thriving on destroying wildlife and waterways and trafficking humans and the sex trade and all this. And it's all one big criminal enterprise of the same people. Right. Um, and that message hasn't really gotten, it, it, it's, it's getting better. We're certainly getting that message out further, especially from those of us that love our wildlife resources, because everyone relates to the environmental damage, but right. with all the protests and all the fringes of the left and the right fighting right now on mainstream media and fake news, like you said, 
sometimes our environmental component and what's really happening on the border protection issue kind of gets swept under the rug a little bit because there's so many extreme things, wildfires and everything. So mm. I'm, I'm glad you're, you know, promoting that and discussing that and bringing that in as a key component of what people need to be thinking about when we vote on November 3rd and make that choice and really look at the policies of who is really going to do something or continue to do something from the standpoint of protecting these, these wildlife resources that we all hold near and dear. And I'm certainly doing the same and together and people like, us and putting this message out through podcasts, we got to get the message out and appreciate you doing that. It's huge. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's hard not to lose your focus during this. I mean, to think about, you know, the environment <laughs> with everything else going on, it, it makes your head spin, especially when, you know, I see like New York City votes for New York State. I know, you know, I have a roots in New York, my brother's in New York, and they are so depressed that rural America is affected by what New York City thinks. And it's because, you know, they, they vote for the state, they put the politicians in, they put the policies in, you know, he has to go jump through all kinds of hoops to ha- have a handgun in New York when, you know, New Hampshire, you, you can just get a handgun, you can walk into a gun store and buy a handgun. And the policies of New York, it's just uh, for rural New York, those farmers out there, the people that, that hunt and fish for a lot of the land mass in New York, New York City sets everything for them. And thank God for the, 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 the fish and wildlife agencies that before that happened, that had the forethought of giving most of the regulation to that department and regulating fish and wildlife based on science. And, I, and you mentioned to Jana with uh, the, the Humane Society of the United States, it's, it's not science-based. It's emotionally, that's what they're going after. They're going after your emotions. They're going after my emotions and telling you probably the wrong side of the story in order to get their mission across to people that aren't aware of what's going on. And it's, it's just so sad that, um, and thank goodness, but they're, they're starting to put legislation into every state that we have to constantly fight because that's the way to get around the fish and game agencies, the fish and wildlife agencies. That's the way to get around using science base to manage, you know, no matter what population is to, to hit that uh, emotional side. And let's face it, politicians are emotional. They all of a sudden they get a billion calls from, you know, Humane Society. Well, I, I guess I got to vote for that because that's, I'm getting, that's, that's my clientele calling me. And half the time it isn't your clientele. It's somebody from another state. You know, you got to really, for these politicians, yep. they got to really listen to their people, not to all of a sudden they get all kinds of calls because it's quite an organization. And, and I hate to say it, they do a very good job at it. And they're very organized mm-hmm. and we're, we're constantly well, raise, in a fight. Yeah, they raise millions and millions of dollars. These PETA groups, HSUS, these mm. anti, they, they're anti-hunting, but they that's not what they're postcard says right mm. there they come at people um through social media and also mailings my here's the perfect example my mom <laughs> she's the sweetest thing she really is the sweetest thing on the planet but like she'll get a little postcard in the mail and it'll say you know save the wolf pups right in my mom oh now mind you this is 10 years ago before i really got involved um, she doesn't do this anymore, but she <laughs> would, she would fall for it. Cause she's so sweet and nice. So she'd send her 10 bucks into saving these endangered wolf pups. What? I mean, we all know what a joke that truly is. I mean, first off the wolf pups don't need saving as they need to be managed more than any other predator, you know, and it's just, <laughs> it's just not telling the real story, mm-hmm. but it's, tugging at the heartstrings with the cute little wolf puppy picture on the postcard and having people who don't know any better Mm -hmm. and who don't know what's going on in their own backyards. Um, And it, and they're raising millions and millions of dollars. They've got a lot of power and it's sad because it isn't science-based. It's, you know, a lot of times when I'm talking to non or even semi anti hunters who don't understand, it's kind of like the wolf issue or the mountain lion issue of course they're beautiful animals. Mm-hmm. No one would argue that. And I wouldn't even argue that. Not I, I love to hunt bear and wolf and mountain lion and predators and they're beautiful, but they need to be managed. I live in the Bitterroot Valley of Montana where they did a recent mountain lion study a couple of years back where they came to the conclusion that we are about 30 to 40% above carrying capacity of the land. There are simply way too many mountain lions and they're eating way too many elk calves, deer fawns, they're damaging the sustainability of the ungulate herds. It's like when I'm talking to these antis or nons, 
It's like if you had a beautiful fish tank and your kid had spent so long, you know, balancing the water and having all these beautiful different fish and you drop a piranha into the water. <laughs> you know, the piranha is going to live in the tank for a little bit. He might take one. <laughs> Eventually, the kid's not going to have any fish, especially if there's two piranha in there. And right? then the they piranha dies. <laughs> And I'm not saying piranhas are cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're cool, right? Piranhas are awesome. They're cool. But it's all about managing. And, you know, that's mm -hmm. a real simplistic story. But it makes them think like, oh, okay, they're, you know, they're, when there are too many predators, they need to be managed. Yes, we eat them. Um, it's not something that they're, it's not a story that they're going to come across on their social media or on, especially on the news, but it's true. And, and we need to get you, like you said, that science-based mm -hmm. data out there. We hunters know it because we're involved. You know, right. when we, um, we all of us go online to buy our licenses on whatever fishing game or um, DNR website, those sites have great reports, great scientific articles and studies that are going to link you to the other conservation groups. We get it. It's just the the dialogue needs to open up with the people who aren't in our hunting circles. Absolutely. And part of that management, and me and John were part of that, is the law enforcement. And I always tell my right. biologists, you know, you guys can, and I love this word, I made it up, biologize all you want, but without any teeth, you know, you can, you, we can make all the rules, we can make all the laws without the game wardens, you know, it, it, it's, it's not going to happen. It's not going to be anybody right. there to protect those or help institute your management things and i just i see a trend on the east coast with uh wardens starting to drop in numbers uh getting assigned other things and it scares me that we're, we're not we're losing focus again because there's so much else going on around us we're losing focus yeah. over that law enforcement being part of the management plan so right right yeah. well we well it's it's we need our wardens just like we need our police you know, like, I don't know one of my friends who don't love game wardens. I want somebody policing my mountains. Mm. I want someone who is going to be out there who, you know, there's a, there's, there are bad seeds in, in every single, you know, uh, facet of life that you talk Absolutely. about. I don't even care right. if you're talking about professors, teachers, police officers, doctors, there's bad seeds in everything. There are bad hunters or mm -hmm. I, and I, poachers there's poachers within our community i but i don't know any one of my friends who wouldn't be the first person to dial up the poaching hotline and turn somebody in who's doing anything illegally mm. you know we need our wardens just like we need our police you know the, the whole defund the police thing is the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard of like i a lot of my friends are law enforcement we need law enforcement we need to be policed by law and order i mean who 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 do they think is going to come to their aid? I just don't understand it. And the same thing goes for the wardens. I believe that we, I believe they're underpaid. I believe the wardens, the biologists, everybody there uh, is there because they love to do it. And they have a passion for, you know, protecting wildlife and protecting what we are, our hunting heritage. Um, but the system's broken and we need to, we need to, um, back it better, I believe. Mm -hmm. No, I, yeah, absolutely, Jana. And that support for the thin green line of game wardens from you and, and other hunters and conservationists out there is huge because, like Wayne said, we're dwindling in numbers and we don't use the, you know, the name thin green line lightly, you know, especially when it comes to the conservation law enforcement front. Um, and we are seeing dwindling numbers. And as people through COVID and, and the non, so to speak, start really looking at how much they want their wildlife protected, whether they hunt or not, we're kind of the last line of defense out there. And, and those of us that are conservationists like yourself that aren't a game warden, but are out there and they have reach and they can, you know, send the message and they can be eyes and ears out there with that turn in a poacher hotline, um, you know, I, I say this to everybody, the thin green line isn't just the law enforcement branch of, of the game warden world. It's all of us out there that love our wildlife, wildlands and waterways and can kind of be satellite game wardens. I mean, you can see so many mm -hmm. things when you're on a hunt, filming a show, maybe on a veteran function or whatever, and you can make that call to that Wyoming game warden that's probably 300 miles away because <laughs> he's lost two positions or she's lost two positions and he's covering three districts like we all are in all the states. <laughs> and California was the same way with what Wayne's dealing with in New Hampshire. And I'm sure you know a lot of game wardens in your area in the Bitterroot and up here in Flathead Valley in the Yak. We have one game warden 
and what she has to cover for Lincoln County in this type of terrain is absolutely mind blowing. And what she cannot possibly catch or see for major wildlife violations and impacts to our big game species. So we're, you know, we're all eyes and ears out there and um, promoting our game wardens is huge. And, and thank you for doing that. That's absolutely. Huge. And you, you brought up a really good point too. And, and that is, even if you're not a hunter, you need to support hunting. And even, I know a couple of people actually buy licenses, uh, just general licenses every year to yeah. support it, even though they're not hunters, because they love wildlife. They love watching the elk in their backyard. They love watching all the deer and, and, and they get it. And I, that's a message I think that we all need to do a better job at it, which is if, if you're not, if you're not hunting, you're missing out. But if you're not hunting, at least <laughs> need to support it because our dollars are the ones creating those sustainable herds. And if you're, I don't care if you're a hiker or a mountain biker, um, here in Montana, we have amazing mountain biking trails. People come to the state just to hike, you know, and, mm. and all over the West and even other states. There need, I think there needs to be some, something, something better to where people have a, a better understanding and a more awareness of that. Those trails, those public trails that you love to hike on, those animals that you love to watch, a lot of what is keeping them healthy and keeping that habitat public is from hunters dollars. So you need to at least get on the support bandwagon. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's the message we need to keep sending for sure. Mm -hmm. awesome. Get involved, go to the banquets. You know, I believe that I do believe this COVID thing is going to finally blow over a bit um, and that we're going to get back out into the fundraising and the banquets and, you know, go, I encourage everyone to go to one of the, a fun dinner and almost every single city has some form or fashion of a hunter based conservation group having a fundraiser dinner. They are so much fun. Um, blast, you know, whether yeah. it's yeah, ducks unlimited Rocky mountain elk foundation, MDF, NWTF, find a dinner in your, in your area, get your neighbors together, buy a table or even get your work group together, buy a table, go have fun. You might even win a gun, win a hunt, you know, bid on the auction items. That's one way people can be supportive is to support those kind of conservation banquets. And mm. it does a lot. That's their primary fundraiser or form of fundraising is those banquets, but get out, enjoy them, have a good dinner, buy a table, take your friends and uh, put your money where your mouth is, which uh, <laughs> is <in love. laughs> what you love, you know, which is wildlife. Yes. Yeah. yeah, we've been seeing more and more of that at banquets, especially up here in our local chapter. Um, I think the last banquet we had, little little Libby, Montana, generated something like seventy five thousand wow. dollars from a small, you know, mountain community. And I can say that, of course, there were a lot of hardcore elk hunters because look where we're at, right, Jenna? Mm. You and I are in kind of the elk hub of, you know, the Northwest. But um, I would say probably a third of everybody there were non-hunters. They were guests and family members coming from other states. And, you know, it was just that. And it was because of those uh, non-hunting curious enthusiasts that yeah. we generated so much money. And, and that money goes a long way. It really does. Every, every dollar of that is budgeted out very carefully to what habitat program is going to be enhanced in parts of Montana or other parts of the state, what controlled burns, what fence repairs, what, you know, where we're having cattle elk integration problems. I mean, there's, it, it's unfathomable how detailed and how much we dive into really protecting wildlife and habitat and the process through these, through these uh, conservation groups, these NGO groups, and it's, uh, they need to be supported. Yeah. And you can go on to each and every one of their websites and you can see where those dollars go. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't think we do a, a good enough job of championing uh, where, our, where our money goes and where our hard work goes and they're getting better with it. Um, but even through social media, the conservation groups need to get their message out there even stronger of where those dollars go. So people can see like, oh, that's cool. That's a, you know, big water trough on this side of the mountain that I live in. So the deer don't have to cross over to the river, you know, and they're getting right. hit. And yeah. Like in their own backyard, they, they'll be able to see where their dollars are going. And um, hopefully that makes them donate a little bit more. Mm, really for helps. sure. For sure. And um, well, man, it's uh, 
absolutely great to talk to you about yeah. all of this. It has been a while and we're uh, really, really grateful to have you on the Thin Green Line podcast and certainly we'll stay in touch and promote and help you on any of your programs. Mm. And certainly we'll keep in touch on the stuff we're doing on this end and uh, just appreciate all the support and all you're doing out there for, for everything in the conservation world. It, it's amazing. Well, I really appreciate the support as well. And I appreciate you guys. I, uh, I definitely um, have a soft spot in my heart for law enforcement, for game wardens, for people who are putting their lives on the line. It's a dangerous job. And, uh, but it's so critical and so necessary. And I mean, I get to do what I get to do. And I'm so blessed to be able to work in the hunting industry. But uh, I get to do it because of guys like you. So thank you so much. Thank you to all our military out there. I, uh, I really, um, I get more excited about my veteran hunts that I get to do than <laughs> and, uh, I'm really excited to get Jonathan into the Wyoming mountains at RNK this October. So keep an eye on my social media. I'm nice. going to tell his story. Nosler's building him a gun right now. And I love to tell his story. I'm going to love to tell his story through the start, very start of building that rifle all the way up to hopefully him gripping his pull. But, uh, yeah, thank you to all the military out there. Um, and uh, everybody else who is fighting for what we what we love. True pleasure, awesome. Jana. Very nice. Thanks for having us in your home. And uh, yeah, that mountain lion, uh, it's going to be, when I think of Jana Waller, I'm going to think of that mountain lion right behind you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Yeah, that was my very first mountain lion. And it's I, I love to do podcasts in front of it and because it is it is misunderstood. You know, predator hunting is misunderstood, especially mountain lions. People, they're really a, a recluse predator. People don't see them all that often and they don't understand that that they're outnumbered in certain areas. Um, so it's a great conversation piece. Yes. Uh, people don't know that you do eat mountain lion. It's delicious eating. And mm-hmm. so it's always fun to be back there, but, uh, yeah. yeah, thanks for having me on guys. I look forward to maybe getting on again after the fall season and telling some good hunting stories. That would be great. Let's do it. And good, good luck on that October hunt. We cannot wait to see that veteran story play out and we'll, uh, awesome. we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Sounds good. Bye guys. 